Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. What's my story? In 2007, I was divorced, in debt, stuck in a soul-sucking job, desperate to have a meaningful, fulfilling life, but not sure where to begin. I made a simple choice at the time, to start honoring my yes and to start speaking my no. Consequences be damned. After all, how could my life possibly get any worse? I began the long path of becoming a professional songwriter, finding my fearless voice along the way. Now, I'm living my dream life as a husband, father, and professional storyteller. Are you ready to minimize overwhelm and maximize your capacity to do your best work? In April, I'll be offering the Spring Clean for Authors four-week online support group to help you declutter your personal and professional lives. You can show your interest by pre-RSVPing today. Just visit ethanfreckleton.com slash declutter. That's ethanfreckleton.com slash declutter. Link will also be available in the show notes. After three books, Alexandra Manier had established herself as a mid-list author, which was a mixed blessing. On the one hand, she'd established herself with a young adult paranormal audience. On the other, her career could have easily stopped growing at that point. Despite being told that science fiction stories in space were not a great market, she persisted with writing her story, The Final Six. As luck would have it, by the time the manuscript was ready, space stories were making a comeback and her book was acquired by HarperCollins and Sony Pictures in two major preemptive deals in the same week. What has Alexandra learned from her journey? Be sure to find out on this week's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. Alexandra Munir, welcome to The Fearless Storyteller podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And so for people who don't know who you are, what would you like to say about yourself? Um, Well, so I'm the author of uh, six uh, young adult novels. And uh, my first were the time travel series, Timeless. And then I had two standalone mystery novels after that. But the series I'm most excited about right now that uh, the sequel just came out is The Final Six, my YA Mm. sci-fi Mm-hmm. Uh, series, which began in 2018 with the book, The Final Six, and now the sequel, The Life Below, which just came out last week. Cool. So you, you it seems like you write a lot of um, standalone novels and and shorter series, short form. Like uh, duologies. Yeah, yeah duologies. Mm-hmm. And like... Do you have a thought process around like how that comes about, whether you do a single book or a series or? I really like duologies better than um, 
than trilogies or longer series, just because I think for me, um, I'm a Gemini, so I feel like I can get distracted easily. So mm. uh, I really, already even just two books, that's like, you know, four years of your life when you think about it. Mm. And so I really love to be able to pour my whole heart and energy into those two and then be able to move on to something else. But in the case of the final six, I I still feel like there could be more story down the road. So I mm. might, you know, I have a couple more things I'm committed to after this series, but after those two books are done, I, I could definitely see myself coming back to this. Mm. And for anything you've written before, did you ever find yourself having that pull after a few years to come back? <clears throat> um, I definitely feel that way about Timeless, my time travel series, because that was so much fun to write. Mm. And I love the characters and um, I absolutely would love to revisit that. So right. it's just, it's all really, it's all just a matter of timing. But I also think that you can revisit certain stories in different formats. So right now I'm talking to an amazing showrunner about doing Timeless as a TV series potentially. So we'll hmm. see. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah, and so um, a lot of the audience, there's there's kind of a couple audiences I have. And one is, you know, pursuing that traditional publishing model or they are traditionally published authors. And mm -hmm. there's also a lot of uh, independently published authors. And so for them, um, they might not have as much visibility into this world you're talking about, like the traditional publishing and mm -hmm. pitching things and working with showrunners and all this exciting stuff you're working on. And like, so for, to rewind a little bit, like how did you get started and like, how did, how did Timeless come about? So it's actually, and I think this might be why Jessica recommended me for your podcast because of the whole music connection. Mm. So um, I actually started out as a singer, a singer, songwriter and recording artist when I was a teenager. Mm. And so that ended up, it's the most, probably the most unusual way to get into publishing books, but um, I was always reading at the same time. I would often bring a book into the recording studio and I would get like frustrated because <clears throat> because I wanted to keep like reading and then it was like, Oh, now it's time for you to sing. So that should have been my first, my first cue that uh -huh. I, I loved books even more. Uh -huh. um, and so, yeah. So through my music sort of career, that's how I got an agent because I was represented for singing and performing and all of that. So then when I came up with an idea for my first book, which was timeless. I asked my agent at the time, I said, is there someone in literary that you could connect me to? So they set up a meeting for me in New York with the literary agent at my agency at the time. And then um, I was fortunate in that she totally saw the potential of the idea and believed in it. And um, she encouraged me to write it as a proposal. Mm -hmm. And so I did that. Um, I wrote about eight pages. And then she sent it to a friend of hers at Random House, an editor. And she was like, well, let me just see like what they think of this and maybe they can give you some advice. And then I was, we were all like totally shocked when they made an offer for a two book deal based on that. And so huh. from that point forward, I really started to segue more towards writing as a career more mm -hmm. than the music, even though I still incorporate music in all of my projects in some way. 
um, definitely writing is the thing that that took off for me. Um, and so it is a very unusual sort of way of getting an agent and getting into it. But there's a lot of traditional ways that really work. A lot of my friends have success with like, I mean, online, there's such a huge resource and such an amazing community for people that are in the early stages of getting published. Um, mm. I really, I really recommend this website, querytracker.com. Okay. It's Q U E R Y tracker.com. And that's a great place where, um, authors can see, you know, what agents are open to submissions and what they're looking for. And I know of a lot of like big time authors that have gotten discovered that way through just, you know, submitting coldly. Yeah. And so looking back on it, like, what do you think it was about your proposal or what you were writing that caught the attention of your publisher? So I think it was very much the right idea at the right time because I pitched Timeless. I think the the Twilight movies had started already, Mm -hmm. um, but it was right at that major peak of Twilight. So the first movie had come out. There was massive excitement around the second one. Um, And so I think when I pitched an idea that was called Timeless and it was a paranormal romance, even though it's very different from like, there's no vampires in mine or anything. I think this whole sweeping epic love story trend that Twilight really started, I think that totally worked in my favor. And I mean, I wasn't even thinking about it, but that, but afterwards when everyone was like, wait, how did that happen? I'm like, it must, it must be that. Like the market was very open towards paranormal romance. And then Mm -hmm. I happened to come up with an idea at, at the right time. You just have to really write the story of your heart and you're excited and then know that that's what will find an audience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a good lesson to come by. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And like, definitely. Yeah. It can be frustrating, but yeah. So how did you arrive? Like, is there more to that story of like how you arrived to that perspective and maybe decided to stop trying to write the trend? Well, I think what happened was I, with Timeless, it was genuinely like, I had no idea that even was the trend. And so Mm. it just sort of worked out. Um, And then after, after the Timeless series, once I'd finished the sequel, then I started, I came up with like a couple of different, very dystopian ideas um, that I thought could be like a great, you know, next novel for people to read if they had loved The Hunger Games or for Mm -hmm. example, like something in that vein. And I just, by the, by the time I started pitching those, the kind of response from my publisher was like, oh, people are, people are over dystopian. So, Mm. so I just, that was sort of what made me realize that it's really, you just, you can't look at what's working and try to write something that fits that model. You have to just write what you want to write. And I mean, even with the final six, um, I did get some feedback early on people saying, oh, space and YA doesn't sell or it's not marketable. But I just really believed so much in the idea that I went for it. And by the time that my book came out, um, space had become like randomly trendy. I mean, I know you talked to Jess, her series is amazing and that's set in space. And mine came out uh, around the same year as a number of others. So that's one where I'm really glad that um, I just kind of kept writing despite Mm. the fact that I wasn't sure if there was the market for it right and in your press materials it noted that you had some success with that novel as far as getting acquired 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So what happened there? Yeah, so that was uh, like the wildest week. Um, it was amazing. Uh, so I had written the first two chapters of the final six plus I'd written a really detailed synopsis. So I would say like the overall proposal was like 52 pages or something. Oh, wow. And, um, and so, um, my manager had the really good idea of, he said, let's, let's see if there's any, you know, movie producers that would get interested in this because if they were to then be able to sell it to a studio, then suddenly, you know, you can get that much better of a book deal. Mm. Um, and that and that was a really important step for me because since I'd already come out with three to four books by that point, um, you know, I was what you would call like a mid-list author, which basically means like, you know, you're doing fine and doing well and you have your audience, but you're not like a big bestseller. So mm-hmm. it can be hard it's always harder for mid-list authors than it is for debut authors where it's like the sky is the limit. You could be the next JK Rowling um, or established bestsellers, obviously. So basically with this book, my representation team was like, let's reinvent you because we believe that you are like bigger than the kind of success I'd had up until that point. Mm -hmm. So, um, so by doing that, it was, it was the smartest move because it, I mean, again, this was one of those things where it sounded too good to be true almost. I was like, is this really going to work? But we did, you know, get very fortunate in that there were a number of producers that loved the final six with my proposal and the chapters that I had submitted. And so there were different producers that wanted to take it to different studios. And the first producer, Josh Ratman, Mm. he brought it to Sony and they made a preemptive offer, meaning that they basically took it off the table. Um, so we didn't even end up having to pitch other studios. And so that was really, really amazing and exciting. And it absolutely did what my manager had wanted to do. Uh, I was able to get, you know, a more significant deal with um, HarperCollins, my new publisher. And I think it was really nice because even though I wasn't a debut author, I was, it was my first book with them and they were yeah. positioning me in a new genre. So they did a lot of things that um, I hadn't had with previous books. Like they sent me out on tour and, um, you know, did some like online marketing and advertising and things that in the past I would have just sort of had to do myself. So, um, so I really, that's another thing I really recommend to authors is you can always reinvent yourself. And I see it with my other friends that I have some friends that they, we all published around, um, around the same time we all debuted in 2011 and, one of my author friends, who is also friends with Jessica Brody, Gretchen McNeil, mm. um, she's someone who's had an amazing career because she also, I mean, we both started out like mid-list and now she has a, a TV series on BBC and Netflix around one of her books, or around one of her book series. It's called Get Even okay. and it's already, it's already out in the UK and it's now, it's going to be coming to the US this year as well. So it's so cool to see that because I feel like, you know, when Gretchen and I, for example, both came out, I don't know that people would have been looking at us and saying like, oh, TV shows and movies and things like that. But I think it's persistence and believing in yourself. And um, and also just when you write really good books, people find you. Like with Gretchen, she mm. said it was like a totally out of the blue thing where someone from BBC just contacted her. Yeah. Um, and so it's been so exciting to see her star start to rise. And I think now 
there is starting to be more attention paid to authors that maybe had a slower burn in the beginning and mm -hmm. are now like coming into their own career life. Yeah, that that has to be encouraging to see that. Yeah, it's as the a best, trend. And especially because she's so awesome too. So it's like when good things happen for awesome people, you're like, yay! Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and I noticed that your grandmother um, was pretty prominent. In, yes. Yeah, you want to talk about like her and what she my grandmother. Kind of, yeah, and what she means to you and. Yeah, yeah. so my grandmother, Monir Vakili, she was Iran's foremost opera singer. And this was at a time before the revolution when women had, uh, they just had a lot more freedoms than right now they do under the sort of current regime. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's amazing to think about like the, the incredible influence that my grandmother had and what women were able to do back then. And she started and she started the first co-ed school of classical music of, of mm. voice for women and men for, I mean, obviously they were younger, they were um, school aged. And it was for a lot of these kids, it was like their first exposure to getting to learn how to sing in that classical operatic way that my grandmother did. And she really inspired a whole new generation. And she was just incredible and such a role model for me. And what's so sad is that she passed away before I was born. Mm -hmm. And so my grand, so my my parents named me Alexandra Monir, with Monir being my middle name, mm -hmm. in honor of her. And so once I started singing, I knew, and my music was very much inspired by her and by my mom, who is also a singer. So I knew that once I was going to be a singer, I made my stage name Alexandra Monier instead of my like legal last name. Mm. And then once I segued into books, I did the same thing. Yeah. And so that was yeah, what I kind of wanted to ask about was like the home environment around creativity yeah. when you were growing up. And so it sounds like your mom was creative. Yes. Oh my gosh. It was the best upbringing in terms of being. I mean, exposed to the arts in such an amazing way. My mom was always writing music. She was at the recording studio a lot. I would go see her in concert. And mm. so I just, from a very early age, I was, I was able to see the arts as being like the highest thing that you could kind of attain. Um, whereas I know a lot of other authors or singers, they kind of had to fight their parents to, to be able to pursue that. Right. Um, for me, it was very much like, you know, I was so supported, supported and that my parents were really proud. And I honestly owe, I, I think I owe my success to them completely because, I mean, they just nurtured that, supported that in me in such a huge way. Yeah, that's got to be huge. And yeah, I wish everybody could have parents like my parents. They really are amazing. And so you're a parent now, right? And yes, I know it's crazy. And I have a couple children too. And so I oh, how old are yours? I have an 18-year-old and a four-year-old. Oh, wow. Nice age spread there. <laughs> yeah. Kind of different eras of my life, you know. And, yeah. That's really I, cool. I think about that, right? Like those those lessons from growing up, right? And yes. How we can influence our own children. The yeah. The environment De we create. Definitely. And I feel like I, I try to do that with my son, Leo, who is going to be three um, at the end of May. and. Um, you know, a lot of people will say things like, oh, boys aren't into reading. But I'm like, no, that's not true. You just have to get them excited about reading. So 
from before Leo could talk, I was constantly reading to him. And now he really looks forward to our, our stories that we read together. And at bedtime, I read him two stories and he's always asking for one last one. And, uh -huh. um, and the other day, yesterday, actually, he said, when he grows up, he's going to write a book like mommy. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, it's so crucial to be that example for your kid. Yeah. That's awesome. I know my, my kids love their stories as well. Oh, that's so yeah. great. Yeah. And so you've done songwriting and you write books. What's the overlap between the two? So there was probably the most overlap was in my first series. So with Timeless, it worked out really well for me to um, incorporate music because my female protagonist, she was an aspiring lyricist and a poet. And then when she goes back in time a hundred years, she meets this boy who's a composer and a piano player. And they end up writing this music together. That's this unique blend of the old and the new. Mm. And so I wrote the lyrics into the manuscript, into the book. And then what I did was then after the book was done, I went and I recorded the songs and put, we put them up on iTunes so that anyone, you know, who was reading the book, if they wanted that like three-dimensional experience, they could then go listen to the songs that are in the mm, book. Mm. Um, and so um, then with the sequel, we sort of put out a third song and then we put them, everything is up now on Spotify as well. And um, with the final six and the life below, obviously when you're talking space travel, it doesn't really make sense to necessarily have like, you know, pop music in there or anything. But what I did do was... Um, you know, I talk a lot in The Final Six and The Life Below about how with like clandestine missions and with space, so much code, like coded language and you know, computer mm. codes and things like that. And so there is one really pivotal scene in The Life Below where my protagonist, Naomi, is trying to send a message to another world. And she basically codes a song into a radio wave format and beams it as a signal over to Europa, Jupiter's moon, um, which is where, where a lot of the story takes place. So, um, so I basically, you know, that's an area where music was used. I didn't use my own music for that. I used the song, the Radiohead song, Sail to the Moon, because I was like, oh, wow. what could be more perfect than that song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, but then there's another point in the story where musical code comes into play, and I just wrote like a little simple melody for that. Um, so yeah, I like to always find ways to incorporate music, even if it's not as like literal as having songs that are tied to the book. I still mm. like to basically have that connection there. Yeah. And from a craft perspective, right, they're, they're mm -hmm. different forms of storytelling. So, yeah. So how do you think about like storytelling in song form versus in a book? So I look at it like, I mean, you're, you're in both, you're obviously telling a story. I think with music, you have so much less time to work with, obviously. So you have to be a little bit more broad and you have to get your message across, and, you know, verse, in the verse chorus format. And then with a book, you have all this time and room to play with and to explore. Mm -hmm. But I think in both, you're trying to express, you know, a theme and emotion. And what I love about writing music is that I feel like music is where you go and just like the emotion is so huge that just real words 
just write words on paper aren't enough. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine a lot of writing YA is evoking emotion, right? And getting that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I love it so much is because your characters aren't yet jaded. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they feel everything so deeply and everything matters and the stakes are so high at that age. Hmm. Have you thought about writing for different ages? I have, for sure. Um, I totally have ideas for writing for grown-up audience. And especially now that I'm, you know, a parent and a little bit older, um, I definitely am thinking more about writing like women's fiction or historical fiction. When I got my first book deal, I was only 23, so I was much mm. more connected to that teenage sort of mindset yeah. and life. And now I feel like it's so funny. Now I'm like connecting more to like you know young parents for example and yeah. so um you know not that i'm such a young parent i mean like parent of a young kid <laughs> yeah um so for example when i read novels by you know leanne moriarty who you know she wrote big little lies or um you know people or jojo moyes those women's fiction authors i definitely get excited you know thinking about writing something like that myself yeah yeah it's it's funny as I've gotten older, all, there were these songs that I was like always exposed to as kids that I thought were like so cheesy, you know, <laughs> like, like roll my eyes and you know, yeah. Once it's like kind of have to age into some stories. Feels like I know and, it's the and weirdest thing. It's like thing. oh my gosh, this cheesy song is just totally <laughs> like totally hit me. Like okay, over the yeah, head. I get it. I know. Now. It's so strange when you start to identify more with like the grown-ups in the room than the teenagers. Like that's so weird. Yeah, I'm working on going the other direction now. But oh, really? That's so a you're writing story. more? No, just personally. No, as far as oh, okay, working toward resonating with you know everybody again. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you you are a speaker as well. You go mm -hmm. around the country. And so what's important to you? Like, what are you trying to get across when you're talking to people out and about I in the think, world? I think the biggest thing is like, you know, just knowing that there's no timetable on your dreams and that you can go for it at any age. Um, I see a lot of young readers at my signings that are like, oh, you know, I have an idea for a book maybe when I'm older. And I'm like, no, start now because, I mean, so many authors do start really young. Mm -hmm. And I think I think the author who wrote Divergent, Veronica Roth, she was like 22 when that book came out or something. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's pretty amazing. And so I, I definitely, you know, want to sort of convey that message of not to be intimidated and that you can start as young as you want. And then on the whole other opposite side of the coin, there are people that think they're too old to write their first book. And then it's like, no, look at Delia Owens, who wrote Where the Crawdads Sing. She had the right. number one best-selling book last year, and it was her first book, and she is 70. So, um, so I think that's just the key is I love to sort of get out there that feeling of like anything is possible and to just go for it. And it's really all about who is willing to sort of stick with it and put in the work because there's mm. a lot of people that will try something and then give up when it gets hard which i totally understand by the way because not everybody has the support system to keep going right but but when you can and when you do push past past the hard roadblocks um i feel like those are that's when success comes mm. and so 
writing's not an easy thing to get into no right and so like who helped you along and what did you do to stick with it and grow to the point where you could have a book be picked up and you know well i like i said before i think my parents support was absolutely huge and um I mean, I think that's everything. And especially, you know, in the early years when I was in my early 20s and I had just gotten the book deal for Timeless and I was in New York City and I was writing this book, um, you know, especially because the way the payment structure is done in publishing, you don't, you get paid up front and then you, you get paid next, like once the book is done. So mm-hmm. for me, I was learning how to write a book on the job, really. And there was a long, long period between payments. And I mean, my parents, I will totally happily admit that my parents helped me during that time. Mm. And that is what enabled me to really do my best work because I wasn't like rushing to try and finish so I could get paid. You know what I mean? Yeah, Which I do. definitely happens. And a lot of people have no control over that. Um, but I think my parents believing in me and they were like, no, you know, we know you'll, you'll make it all back. Like just, we're going to help you right now. Like that was, huge and allowed me to take the time I need and spend a long time writing that book. So I would Mm. say, I would say that. And I would also say like, don't be afraid to ask your parents for help, which um, I know that might sound funny to say, but um, I feel like everybody, you know, wants the opportunity to help their kid. I know that's all I want to do with my son. And sometimes, you know, they don't know that you need that help until you tell them. So yeah. I definitely recommend like if you feel like this is something you want to do, but maybe you need help. Like if you, if there's a program, a writing program you want to do and maybe it's expensive or, you know, you want to take some time off to write and not work a typical nine to five, for example, I think don't be afraid to like go to the people closest to you, whether it's your parents or a spouse and, and like lay out your game plan and say, okay, Mm. this is what I, plan to do and you do it in like a business-like way saying this is what I am planning to achieve and this is the time I need and this is what the kind of help I would need and this is when I anticipate being able to pay it back and Mm -hmm. I know this all sounds very businessy and not very creative but I just think so much of creativity is feeling like you have that freedom to write and that you're not stressed about you know paying the bills and stuff which is really hard yeah and you know, some people can find support with their parents, others maybe with a spouse, right? Yeah. Community. Yeah, and exactly, exactly. And so, um, you know, before the final six sold, I remember, you know, my husband was like, okay, like, you know, we talked and I was like, I have this idea for this big book and it's going to take a little bit of time for me to kind of formulate. And, and he was like, okay, I believe in you. And I mean, that's so huge. And I know it's also, it's also just, you know, it's one of those lucky things that you don't have control over. Like you can't. So I don't want to make it sound like you need that because you don't. I mean, believe me, there are so many people also who do find a way to make it work, to be working nine to five and they get up early and they write or they stay up late and they write. So there really is no one way, but just from my personal experience, um, that was helpful to me to be able to take the time that I needed in writing timeless and not rush to basically get the manuscript done and having my parents support was really yeah. helpful. Was it hard to ask for help initially? No, because, um, because they're just so wonderful. I think it was two mm. things. I think, um, I think it was 
it wasn't so hard because I was still, I was still relatively young enough that, um, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I wasn't, but also, um, they they just from the beginning were so supportive that, um, you know, that it wasn't, but I, yeah, I, I can see how it does get trickier depending on like what your upbringing is. Like if you don't necessarily have that upbringing that is very focused on the arts, it can be harder. And so in that sense, I would recommend like doing that kind of sort of business plan model of like, okay, this is the time I need. And, um, and this is when I anticipate being able to pay it back. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And so what's your writing process today in terms of getting the words down? And like, what do you need from your environment to? to so I would happen? say it it totally depends on the week. If if it's a deadline week, then I can be writing all day and like ten hour days or longer. Mm. Um, and it's just just taking breaks to you know to take care of my son. And obviously, you know we like we have um, a nanny three days a week, and then my mom helps the other two days. Um, but even when they're over, I'm still I still always want to be involved in, you know, all the kind of big things, you know what I mean? Like before he goes to the park or before his nap or, you know, we always have our little time together. Um, and so um, basically my breaks are just really related to him. And then the rest of the time I'm just writing the whole time. And those days can be so exhausting. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also nice to get that momentum. And sometimes, sometimes you need to just be all in and like doing nothing but just sort of eating sleeping breathing this book and then that can often be how you get it done Mm -hmm. um but then when it's a different kind of a week like for example last week i was promoting the book so i was traveling and i was um three different places in the week and so then it's much harder to sort of focus on drafting because you're very focused on oh my god i have a new book coming out and you're promoting it and um so you're you're kind of all over the place. So then it can be harder. But I at least try to constantly keep the story that I'm working on in the forefront of my mind and maybe, you know, be taking notes on my phone and things like that. So mm-hmm. that, like, for example, this week is going to be a round-the-clock writing week. Mm, deadline week. Yeah. And until the weekend, then I have to travel. But, um, but I'll still be probably writing on the plane and stuff. Yeah. Cool. And for... So you've got six books out now, and mm-hmm. I'm curious if you've noticed any like, themes emerging from your writing that maybe you're surprised about or you just notice. You know, um, yeah, definitely. I think family is a huge theme in my books, um, and I obviously talked about how close I am with my family. Um, and so, yeah, that's always such a huge driving factor in my books, whether mm-hmm. it's you know, trying to get back to family or um, just anything related to that, that family love and need of mm. that kind of bond in, in a character's life. That's a huge theme. Um, I would also say another theme in my book is the idea of somebody being kind of like singled out in some way. Mm. So I had a book, Suspicion, which was about a girl who she finds out she always you know she's half british half american and she finds out that due to tragedy with her british side of the family she is suddenly the last heiress she's suddenly the duchess basically Mm. of 
Oxfordshire. Um, not Oxfordshire, but basically a, a town in Oxfordshire. And, um, and so she basically inherits Rockford Manor and she has this whole, you know, this basically this leadership over a whole community. And so that was kind of like the idea of a young person getting this sort of power thrust upon them mm. that they weren't prepared for necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, obviously final six involves teenagers from around the world being handpicked to compete mm-hmm. for one of six spots on this huge high stakes mission to colonize Europa. So I definitely, um, for sure, I think I gravitate toward those stories of somebody having their whole world turned upside down and mm. being chosen for something amazing. And I think part of that is it's always makes for a good story when you sort of upset the apple cart of somebody's life circumstances right away yeah. in the story. But I also think that um, this whole concept of being chosen is something that is sort of like wish fulfillment for a lot of us. And I think everybody can relate to that feeling, especially in high school. Of, yeah you know, wishing that we would be chosen for something amazing or, mm. or noticed in some way. And so, um, so yeah, so that's, that's where that comes from, I think. Do you, I know you noticed you mentioned Oxfordshire and mm-hmm. setting a book. So do you write about places you've been or, you know, obviously it's a silly question for Europa, yeah. but like, how uh, do you, right. like, how do you know, like, how do you research or know that you know enough? Well, I definitely always try to to see as much as I can. So for a suspicion that involved Oxfordshire, and I was basing this whole Rockford Manor on Blenheim Palace and in the real Oxfordshire, Hmm. um, I did go and I had this amazing, my mom and I had this such a fun mother-daughter trip where we Hmm. went together and researched and um, and so that was really fun. And then with the final six and the life below, I actually went to space camp for adults, which was really wow. such a fun way of getting sort of thrown into that whole world of space travel and astronaut training and all of that. Wow. So is there anything, any surprises that came up with that? You know, I'm trying to think what surprises. I think, um, I mean, a lot of it was new to me. I had been doing a lot of research in space travel, but just the day-to-day. We, I, I was only there for a weekend, but mm-hmm. because the, the kids' program, I think, is like a whole week. It's basically the same. It's the same space camp from that 80s movie called Space Camp. Yeah, it's in Huntsville, I remember that. Alabama. Yeah. Um, and so... So basically they have an adult program and it's basically just like for people that are just interested in space. And, um, and so I did that and it was super fun. And, um, I think like the biggest thing, the biggest surprise was like, they like worked too hard, even though you were doing it as just like camp for fun. It was also like you were getting up at seven in the morning and doing these mock missions and training until like 10 o'clock at night. So you would, I would like go back to the hotel, like so exhausted. Um, (laughs) But it was, it was so much fun. It was so fulfilling. And I I feel like we learned, I learned so much, like particularly the way the different people, the different crew members on a mission interact with each other and also Houston back home. And then also we learned just fun things like how to like make your own rocket, like homemade ones. And um, mm. yeah, it was, it was super fun. And I always try to do as much research as I can. And for sure, the more 
um, the more the more fantasy sci-fi you get, it can be harder because you don't have as much real real settings to draw from. But I still I still always try. Yeah, that's super. That's a lot of fun. Sounds like a good way to keep things fresh and yeah, and enjoyable. And I think research is so important because I think the more you know what you're writing about in the world, I think the more you're able to bring it to light. Mm. And do you find that that helps maybe helps you speed up your writing too, being more confident with? It's funny. I actually think sometimes I, I over research and it causes me to like take longer because mm. especially also in the case of timeless, I did so much research. It was so much fun. I was in New York and I was, um, obviously doing a ton of research about old New York and the different old buildings. And then I went to Newport, Rhode Island, and I visited all the um, Gilded Age manor homes, like the one I was writing about, these like Gilded Age mansions that have been totally preserved. It's so incredible to go see them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely feel like the first, I don't know, six months or something of my book deal, I was just totally immersed in research. And then suddenly it was like, oh my God, this book is due and I still have to write it. Um, so now I, I try to kind of temper the research with like just making sure that, okay, there, there's got to be a point where I just sort of stop with the constant research and I just get to writing because it's one of those double-edged swords where it can be the best thing for the writing. And I did get a lot of feedback with Timeless where, you know, people did say like the best thing, one of the best things about the book was how real it felt and how people felt like they were there and they'd gone back in time with the character. And I know that was because of the research, but at the mm -hmm. same time, that's also the reason the book took like a year and a half or, or something like that. It was my longest book to write because I did spend so much time right. on the research. So. Right. And so a couple more questions. One is um wanted to ask about your involvement with like organizations like specifically the Iranian American Women's Foundation. Yes. And oh, I'm actually wearing their the logo t-shirt right now. So. Perfect. <laughs> perfect. And so like talk about why that's important to you and so I think it's hugely important because I think the biggest reason of why it means so much to me is that I was a teenager post 9-11. And that's a time when obviously everybody is teenagers, everybody's figuring themselves out and yeah. having identity crises already. And, but in right. my case, I went from being so proud to be Persian. I would constantly be that friend that was inviting my friends over to like, have Persian food and we I would put on we'd have Persian music at, playing at home and I was so proud of my culture and then when 9-11 happened even though Iran had nothing to do with it I yep. was I was just suddenly like ashamed to be from the Middle East because mm. all I was hearing was like you know words like evil and stuff like that and um being right about the access of evil yeah right right and um, I still don't totally understand why Iran was in that axis back then. Believe me, I know yeah. their government. I know their government is is uh, you know a scary one, and they're the reason my the, the new regime is the reason my parents escaped. Yeah. So I totally get that you know when it comes to government, but the way that people would turn that on just people of that culture. I mean, the Iranian people are like the best, most kind, loving, warm people. Like. Mm -hmm. I feel like you haven't been like embraced until you 
gone into an Iranian family home, you know? And right. So I, I, have, I get that. Yeah. yeah <laughs> two of my best know? friends were twins. They were oh! Iranian. Yeah. So you probably loved going to their house. I did. Always, always felt the love. I, I did. Yeah. yeah it was and fun. so, so it was very hard to then suddenly it felt like overnight, you know, like my, I'll never forget, like we were at the tennis club and my, my dad and his friend were playing tennis and they were having so much fun and they were talking, speaking in Farsi and then someone saying like, go back to where you come from or like, mm -hmm. you know, comments like that, you don't belong here. And um, it was really, really, really horrible. And especially because I was also trying to get into pop music at that time because mm -hmm. I was writing music and everything. And, um, and I was so excited about that. And then to have agents and managers at the time say things like, you know, um, and this was when I was in high school, like, you know, you got really great material, but you're just a little too ethnic. Like let's, wow. let's bleach your hair blonde. And so I did, I bleached oh, my hair blonde yeah. and I'm still, I'm still paying for that, by the way. I feel like it like messed with my hair, but, mm. um, uh, so I just am so grateful that now I feel like the tide has really turned and people embrace diversity now and, um, and to have an organization like the Iranian American Women Foundation, I'm, I'm so all about it because I just, I really needed that back then. Like I just, I so needed something like that. And I'm constantly so inspired when I do events with them. Like I was on a panel a couple years ago called Millennial Leaders and I was speaking next to this amazing girl. She was working in Obama's cabinet. Like she was mm -hmm. in his mm -hmm. office. She was basically assist she was working with the chief of staff and and um that's just one example i mean there's so many examples of you know mm -hmm. of people in politics and people in medicine and um there's an iranian, inspiring yeah there's an iranian american female judge that i got to hear speak and, and then just to see like we've that you know we've been able to make successes of ourselves in this country and i just think it's so huge and mm -hmm. um and just the idea that the fact that you're different or you might not necessarily look like all your classmates, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And you're able to bring so much, um, you're able to bring so much to essentially like you're able to bring some, something new to what you write and what you do because you're a little bit different. And I, I now yeah. look at my background as being such a huge, huge gift I was given. Right. Only you can tell your stories. Yeah, 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 and then and then to be like the granddaughter of both my grandparents um, on my mom's side were so prominent in Iran, and, um, and they were just such amazing icons, and I've learned so much from just their legacy. So mm. I feel like I that's just something that I wouldn't have had if I had just if I hadn't been born Iranian. Yeah. Um, and then like the love and the heart of our family is so much in our culture. So anyway, not to go on and on, but I just feel like it, it, it was a really hard thing to, mm -hmm. to grow up so different from everyone in my school. And um, especially because of what was being said in like, in, in like the media, like this negative sort of anti-Middle East propaganda that felt like I was hearing every day. Yeah. Um, and so I just, I think organizations like Iranian American Women Foundation, and then there's another one that's amazing called Sarah Hang Foundation. And um, that is all about promoting Iranian arts and culture mm. um, in the States. I feel like those two foundations have done so much for just basically showing 
like all the good of our culture and positive representation that's yeah was really needed yeah well thank you for sharing about that oh thank you for asking i appreciate yeah. it yeah so for people who want to know more about you where can they find you all right so um i have a website alexandramonier.com but probably the best and fastest way to reach me is on social media I love Instagram, um, so I'm on there as at Alexandra Monier. Okay. And um, Twitter at Timeless Alex, because I clearly signed up for Twitter right when I was mm. promoting my first book. I didn't think about the fact that not every book would be called Timeless, but I feel like it still sort of works, like Timeless uh -huh. Alex. Um, right. And then I'm also on Facebook under Alexandra Monier Author. Okay. Great. Yeah, and I love being in touch with readers, so definitely feel free to reach out. Wonderful. Well, Alexandra, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. It's been such a good conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover the Fearless Storyteller podcast.